Hello, everyone. Do you love this podcast and want to find a way to support it? Well, guess what? You can become a sustaining member today. You can do that by visiting the Talk Classic to Me page at anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Once there, just click the support button and select the recurring amount you want to contribute to the podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and the good content that you have come to know and love flowing. You can also find the link to support us on our social media at Talk Classic to Me on Instagram, and feel free to follow us there as well. Thank you so much for being a listener, and we so appreciate you. As always, enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film Christmas in Connecticut from 1945 with my fabulous guest, Ashley Blanchett. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. This is Ashley Blanchett. She is our guest again this week. Hey, guys. Hey, Sarah. Thank you so much for being here. This week, we watched Christmas in Connecticut from 1945, starring Barbara Stanwyck. Ashley, what did you think? I thought it was such a fun Christmas movie. Very feel-good. And I was so excited to watch a Barbara Stanwyck movie where she's not like some evil conniving person it was she was so like just the ingenue sweetheart romantic like virgin girl and I thought that was kind of just lovely on her you know I love her so much she's great do you love are you a big Barbara Stanwyck fan? I'm a big Barbara Stanwyck fan this is actually my favorite movie of hers so my thing with this movie is I know it's not like this award-winning excellent film but it is one of my favorite movies of all time and it's just got this comfort to it. It's like the exact experience and holiday you wish you could have, but will probably never have, you know? It's like that, <laughs> it has everything that you would want. It has a strong female lead. I just love it so much. It's one of my favorite movies. So that's why I wanted to watch it for this. Uh, we'll do a quick plot summary. It's actually really funny because they do a really cool fake out kind of in the beginning. The beginning of the movie is so strange comparatively. And it's totally. Because it's all a setup. The plot is basically, there's this war hero named Jefferson Jones because it's the 40s and Jeff Jones was a great name that they came up with. So we have Jeff Jones, war hero. His ship in World War II gets torpedoed by a German ship and he gets stuck on a raft for 18 days with his shipmate Sinkowitz, also called Sinky. <laughs> and when they take them to a hospital, He's like dreaming of food, but he can't really eat because his body had been starving for a while. And his shipmate convinces him, hey, if you want good food, you have to pretend you're in love with your nurse. So he does, even though he's not really in love with his nurse. And um, she brings him food, but he can't really eat it because he's so sick. And I don't know how that's a thing, though, how like if you put food in your mouth, you can't swallow it. I didn't know that was like a sign of starvation, but maybe it is. We're not really sure how medical, medically accurate this is, I would say. Anyway, so <laughs> he's pretended to love this woman that he doesn't love. She's like, oh, how can I get this sailor to propose to me? I know. I healed this man, Alexander Yardley's niece, I think it was. I'm going to write to him 
and see if he can get a special invitation for A Christmas in Connecticut with THE Elizabeth Lane, who is like the Martha Stewart of the 40s in this movie. I'm explaining this so badly, I'm realizing, but it's okay. No, it's perfect. It's, you're, you haven't missed anything. Something they've been bonding over, the, the nurse named Mary, Mary Lee, she's from the South, so of course her name is Mary Lee, and I was like, oh God, the characters in this are hilarious. So yeah, they've been bonding over this magazine with Martha Stewart-like articles, and she's like, I'm going to write to the Martha Stewart-like editor. He's going to get Jefferson Jones an invite to her house. He'll see how beautiful a family is, and he'll want to marry me. It is foolproof and genius. So all of this comes to pass, except it turns out Elizabeth Lane is not really like Martha Stewart at all. She is a sassy New Yorker living in an apartment, buying herself a mink coat, and like writing all of these beautiful Connecticut fairy tales on a typewriter in her apartment. And it's Barbara Stanwyck, and she's so much fun. And she realizes like, oh my God, my career is about to be over because this editor only wants true stories and this isn't a true story. And this really obnoxious man named John Sloan is like, I have a farm in Connecticut. If you marry me, we can pretend this is all real and it will go perfectly. And your boss will be fooled. So that's what they do. She goes to Connecticut. She's supposed to marry John, but they keep getting thwarted because he's not the right guy for her. She meets Jefferson Jones, the war hero, instantly falls in love. And uh, in the end, it's a happy ending uh, because everybody comes clean and it still works out. She gets to keep her job. She gets the guy. And uh, they all get to eat Uncle Felix's cooking. I would say that's the the whole experience of Christmas in Connecticut. That's the whole thing, girl. So, okay, the beginning. What an interesting way to start a movie. We don't even meet the main character to like after the first 10 minutes in, but it's such a smart buildup because the whole time they're talking, they're like building up this idea of Elizabeth Lane, who is the Martha Stewart character. So we have such a strong idea of her that we get the really strong comedy chops of like when they pan to Barbara Stanwyck and we don't even see her face and we just see her hands at the typewriter and she's describing what she's seeing in Connecticut and they show the real things that she's seeing. So when she's like, I see my front yard and it's beautiful, they show like clothes on a clothesline outside in a city background. And she's like, my fireplace is so warm and they show the radiator. So it's a very clever introduction to Elizabeth Lane, I think. What did you think? It's interesting how like comedy in this time period is so like with like manipulation and lies and deception I feel like every character in this movie is so good at it like even even the whole premise of like him being with this nurse in the first few minutes and that was such a weird way of like they were like well if you want to get good food just pretend to this woman that you like her and we're supposed to like be cool with that that like our main character gentleman guy is gonna like be lying to this nurse just to get some good food. Just to get some good food. And then they show he has a conscience. So they pit him against his shipmate. So his shipmate is the one who tells him to do this. Um. And he's like, I don't know. That's a way to break a girl's heart. Should I really? And the other guy's like, her heart or your stomach. So it's like, because we have the guy that's worse. <laughs> We're like, oh, he's better than that guy. He has a conscience. Like, he at least feels bad about doing it. Yeah. And then we should mention that his shipmate, Sinkowitz, ends up marrying that woman in the end. So it's a total full circle. He talks about, like, pretending to be in love as the Magoo. And in the end, I was like, you couldn't get out of the Magoo this time, could you? said, Magoo will get you in. Magoo will get you out. But not this time, Sinkowitz. Magoo. I love that (laughs) he calls it Magoo. I love that it's Magoo. And I also was thinking this time for the first time, because I've seen this movie so many times, but I was thinking about how, like, 
wait a minute, they're the only two survivors on this like destroyer warship. All of their friends have been killed in a torpedo accident. And because it's a comedy, and it's a lovely comedy, and I'm glad it is the way it is, but they never like address that. They never address like the emotional damage. They never really talk about how they're the only two survivors. Wow, I didn't even think about that. Right? It's I've seen this movie countless times, and this is the first time I thought about it. Well, is it necessarily true that everyone else has died? I mean, could they have just been like separated from everyone else? Okay, that's a little more comforting because the only reason I thought everyone had died was because they must have been so far away from the ship to be out for that long. But that's potentially a possibility. Maybe the ship was stuck and couldn't move. Maybe like they, they were sent out on a separate like other part of the mission or you know, like maybe they just got separated somehow and they're the ones in trouble but everyone else is fine somehow. I don't know. I It seems like the way they're behaving isn't like wow, we just got off of like a situation where everyone we know just drowned. That can't be the premise. That's not how they're acting. Thank you for putting your positive spin on it. I prefer that. Because yeah, they're not behaving that way. So I was like, oh shit. Everyone they know just died. They're like, I want some food. I don't know. But you're right. They don't like ever really make it clear where everyone else is. No. And it's it's just because it's a comedy. I think they're like, don't think about this. Don't think about that war. Shh, shh, shh. It's not you about know? World War II. Yeah. <laughs> this is about fun and a farm and snow. <laughs> like, it's yeah. fine. These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> it's true. So yeah, I love all of that stuff. Also, just I do want to point out like, as always, the feminist lens on this movie from 2020, like, I don't love the Mary Lee character of, like, letting him win at tic-tac-toe and being like, you're so smart. Oh, you think she let him win? Oh, I totally think she let him win. And then when she's like, I could cook for you. I don't know. I just think tic-tac-toe is not a hard game. So if you look at that paper, she has lost time and time again. I just don't think anyone who is a nurse (laughs) could be so stupid as to lose that many games of tic-tac-toe. Oh. You know? But maybe they're stacking her up against our upcoming (sighs) heroine to show, like, why he, like, even if he spends time with her, he's not really, like, he's not obsessed with her because maybe she's just not all... She's not I don't think bright. she's the smartest. She doesn't seem the brightest throughout the movie. Okay, it was just a setup. We had a double setup. Yeah, double setup, girl. Also, I noticed, so this movie had so many themes, again, that I you don't notice when you're watching just as a person, but when you're watching to, like, take notes. There are so many, like comedy triples throughout the movie with lines but then there oh, really? are also like so many they repeat so many lines three times and i'm like oh look at you guys utilizing a comedy triple <laughs> like whoa even the last line in the movie well he says what a christmas twice but right before that they're like she can't cook she can't cook she can't cook like there's so many of those things <gasps> throughout um, so I loved that. And then I loved, um, they are constantly showing us like what you were just saying that I didn't even realize with her and Elizabeth, but I realized it with like John Sloan and um, Dennis Morgan's character and with the two shipmates is they're constantly showing how people are different based on their actions. It's like always two people versus each other and they have different actions. So we know who's good based on those actions. So like, what do you mean? John Sloan is super cheap and they keep showing us that. You can tell he's wealthy, but when he like tips the sleigh driver, he only gives him a penny. And then when Jefferson Jones tips the sleigh driver, he gives him a dollar. So they show like, oh, Whoa. this guy's much more generous. I feel like, yeah, they're constantly pitting two people against each other. Even uh, 
cuddles the call at the uncle felix and um sydney green street are total foils total opposites it's just like a lot of opposites throughout and i love that i know it's i know now it's like for comedy effect but i just like that aspect of the storytelling so i wanted to point it out no because it's good writing like that's that's what makes it good writing is that they've thought this through you know everything happens for a specific reason that i love that and i do want to say it's written based on a short story by a woman and one of the screenwriters was a woman so i'm like whoa i feel like things tend to be better when women are involved i like it when you can see it more from the women's perspective and like when their independence is valued and it's not just about her becoming like a wife it's about her like having this job too yes i i really appreciate that um because yeah i think that's one of the other things i like about this movie is it really she loves her job she enjoys doing it and she's really good at it and she gets to keep it and you know when she's married she's gonna get to keep it and even though she's elizabeth lane and she's supposed to be like prissy and martha stewart like not that martha stewart's prissy but you know she's supposed to be very put together even Elizabeth Lane, the perfect housewife, has a job. So I kind of love that, too. And I just realized it's the juxtapositions of the women, so I keeping like there's opposites everywhere. We have the obvious Elizabeth Lane and Barbara Stanwyck in real life opposite. <laughs> How, like her character is not Elizabeth Lane at all, but she's being both people. That is interesting. And she can't even cook. But what a woman. Some of those jokes, like you think like they're self-aware, but they're, I'm not sure that they are. Like they're just like, they're genuinely like, ah, oh, she can't cook. But you you know, if a, if a woman was writing it, it makes me feel like she, that's a little tongue in cheek. Like that's a little like, and she can't even cook. Like who, who cares? You go to Felix's restaurant and the food it's gonna be amazing and it's always gonna be free yeah so yeah there was stuff like nora the character nora who's played by the wonderful una o'connor character actress of many things i love her very much yeah she's like the irish housekeeper lady i don't really know what her job is but she also has some lines that are like oh shit you know like when she sees elizabeth lane and john sloan going into the same room pretending like they're husband and wife and she thinks they're gonna have premarital sex and she like quits and she says that thing about like I wasn't blaming you I, it's always the woman that leads the man astray I was like oh no that's a rough line a rough pill to swallow but that's why I wonder if like some of the lines are purposely self-aware like it's always the woman who is almost like so self-aware to just say it point blank that I wonder if it's not meant genuinely yeah and she's not a character we would want to emulate so her saying that is like from a person we don't even want to be you're throwing me off by saying that a woman was responsible for the screenplay because once you have a woman writing these things it makes me feel like there's an awareness there of trying to sort of like subtly voice out like this isn't fair that women get blamed for this type of stuff and kind of making the comedic side character actress say that as an Irish Catholic conservative woman who probably would think that and probably would judge more the woman than the man for premarital sex. But for her to say, like, don't worry, I really just mostly judge the woman. I, I don't know. It seems like a... Uh... That's sort of is more of a statement than it is actually something they put in the script to be sexist. Don't you think? Yes. No, I would agree with you that it has a major capacity to be tongue-in-cheek like you were saying. I love the idea of the self-awareness. Even though the people who wrote this 
may have not intended it that way. It still is like a rough thing to hear anybody say. Yeah, but I feel like if they if they were genuinely sexist, it would have been like more kind of like assumed. You know what I mean? Or like hinted at, I think. But the fact that they pointed out specifically to say like, don't worry, I, I only blame the woman. To me, I'm like, oh, they're trying to point this out. They're trying to say like, this is ridiculous, which I think is kind of cool. And then she has to apologize. If they really, you're right. If it really was sexist, this would have felt like a sexist film. Like she would not have been a career woman who values her career and gets to keep it. She would have not been a woman who gets an actual partner who is like different, who is unique. He's an artist. He's a painter. He values family and wants to be involved like in the family home care life. Like he knows how to give a baby a bath and he's good at it. Yeah. Like, I loved all of those moments and that's when you're also like yeah a woman totally helped write because it was a man and a woman that co-wrote it so they they were the screenwriters and then it was based on a short story by a woman but yeah he it, like there are surprisingly not toxic men in this like i think her uncle is super not toxic he's really awesome um he totally supports her does not want her to marry john sloan john sloan is wrong for her she doesn't love him he wants her to be like independent and he supports that and he really actively tries to get her and Jeff Jones together because he sees the potential there and Jeff Jones is a great guy like I it's so funny because I had such a crush on him like in high school all throughout he so cute oh my god why wasn't he in more well there's actually a really great quote about it hold on for all his undoubted star potential, Morgan, so his name is Dennis Morgan, was perhaps cast once too often as the likable, clean-cut, easygoing, but essentially uncharismatic young man who typically loses his girl to someone more sexually magnetic. He was comfortable, good-looking, well-mannered, the antithesis of the gritty Bogart. He just wasn't trendy at the moment. He was too clean-cut. They wanted the Humphrey Bogarts. They wanted the James Cagney. They wanted, like, the gritty dark men like that was what was attractive but like he is so cute well i think he did fine he did like a lot of cheesy musicals that aren't super popular today he worked <laughs> with jack carson a lot so i feel like he did certain things that were like fun and big-ish at the time but he's not like a lasting name and his movies aren't like super lasting like for him, his big ones are this one, oh, The Hard Way. That was the one he did with Ida Lupino. He did Kitty Foyle. That was a big hit for him. Um, that was with Ginger Rogers. Those are like the three things I know him from. He did The Very Thought of You. It's another movie. But he, yeah, he wasn't like a super famous dude. But yeah, I had a huge crush on him. And then watching it this time, I was finding him physically attractive, but so cheesy. I had never found him very cheesy before. Oh. And this time I was like, oh my God, you're such a cheese ball. So it's really interesting to me. But I think that's his appeal. That's funny. Yeah. Well, he's adorable. He's just, a, he looks lovely. He is adorable. He was. Like, his story is, like, came from Wisconsin, was just, like, a nice dude. Right. Um, he was married to his wife for 61 years. Like, had a wife and three kids. No salacious stories in Hollywood. You know, just, like, very ordinary, basic dude. Kind of like his character. Wow. And he retired really young. He regretted not leaving Warner Brothers sooner. He said he felt like he stayed with one studio too long, so he got pigeonholed. And then he said he regretted not getting involved in early television because he didn't really see the potential there and he thought people should have to pay to see celebrities. Oh, wow. Um, and so he's like, I could have had this awesome television career, but I didn't like dive in soon enough. But besides that, I mean, his life sounds pretty lovely. He did fine. <laughs> he did just fine. And then, hold on, do you want to talk about 
Barbara Stanwyck and how awesome she is. I do. But you know what's so funny? I wanted to bring up the fact that as soon as I found out that this was a movie that Betty Davis was about to do until like a month before shooting or whatever, then they switched it to Barbara Stanwyck. I watched this movie and every single scene I was picturing how Betty Davis would do it. I feel like it would be a whole different movie with Betty Davis. It feels a little bit like a Betty Davis movie in that she's manipulating everybody and lying to everybody. <laughs> it's such a happy rom-com. It's kind of hard to picture Betty Davis doing it because it's not like, I don't know to describe it. It's just so... Well, I love her, but comedy is not her specialty. Like Betty Davis, even when she's in comedies, she's not like the funny one. Do you know what I mean? You're right. She's like the dark cloud. Yeah. Or she's like <laughs> just a regular person. Like in The Man Who Came to Dinner... She's not necessarily funny. She's like there. We love her presence, but she's not the one like making you laugh. Yeah. Barbara Stanwyck, what I, not that I don't, again, no knock on Betty Davis. She is fantastic and wonderful. Like I am not worthy, but uh, Barbara Stanwyck, (laughs) I love how subtle she is. Like she's not this giant, like physical comedy, campy kind of queen. She's very subtle and still hilarious. And that's kind of like what she's known for, this naturalistic more modern feel about her. Yeah. And I would say that carries really well in this. She doesn't overdo anything. It's like a very natural kind of comedy. Totally. It is very natural. Like she does a lot of like thinking um, in a way that's like almost upstaging herself. Wait, what do you mean? Or just notice a lot of the scenes in the beginning, especially when she's thinking through like what's her plan going to be, what's she going to do next. I don't know. She kind of like faces away from the camera and doesn't cheat out as much as she could be doing because she's the lead of the film. It just makes me think that she was kind of a a humble sort of like genuine. She's going to do this genuinely. She's not going to do this so that she can be a star like Betty Davis might have, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like this quote about her. There's a quote about her that says she's equally at home in all genres. And I think that's like exactly right. She is good in everything. Like, I feel like she did like dramas and noirs, comedies and westerns, and she's great in all of them and like super natural in them. I think she's so sexy. She is so sexy. She has like a great, a great voice mm-hmm. and a great like vibe about her. Mm-hmm. She has this confidence, but it's like the kind of confidence where it's like, I'm not better than you. I'm like working class like you are, and we're all gonna get along here. Like she'd be your friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's definitely got this, but it's not because she's like rich. It's because she's just a badass bitch. Yes, she is. Do you wanna hear her life story is insane? Do you wanna hear her life story? <gasps> yes. Okay. Yes. So her life story is this. She was born in Brooklyn. When she was, I think, four years old, her mother was killed in an accident. So her mother was pregnant and was knocked off a streetcar by a drunk person and um, died in the hospital of complications from a miscarriage. So that's what happens there. Two weeks later, her dad abandons her family because he can't handle it. He goes to the Panama Canal to like help build it or whatever. He goes to Panama somehow. And uh, so they are abandoned. Her oldest sister raises her. And sometimes her oldest sister to make money has to be a showgirl. So when she is a showgirl, uh, Barbara Stanwyck and her brother have to go live in foster homes. And she runs away from the foster homes all the time. When she's like 14, she drops out of school, never went to high school, gets a job. She has so many different jobs. She works in like a packing department of a, what's it called? A department store. She works cutting patterns for Vogue and gets fired because she's not good at cutting patterns because people complain. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> she sucks. works. What else? She does. She's a typist for like a music store. And then eventually she decides she wants to become a chorus girl. And so like, I know in the summers it said when her sister was doing like chorus girl work, she would go on tour with her sister and like pick up the moves and like learn the acts. So at 16, she becomes a chorus girl. And at first it's not reputable, but then eventually she gets in the Zigfield Follies and what? she gets, yes, she was a Zigfield Follies chorus girl. Yes. You're kidding. I am not. At like, she was a Folly girl? Yes, at like 17, at like 16 or 17. Whoa. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, she was a wow. Follies girl. And then um, her big acting career break ends up coming because they're casting a play. I want to say it's something like The Noose or something like that. I don't remember. I hadn't heard of it. And they wanted to get a real chorus girl to play the role of the chorus girl. And they pick her. And um, they end up like making her part bigger. Uh, because they like her and it it's great and then she gets eventually her big Broadway role like her first lead in Broadway is a huge hit and that's like how she ends up becoming a star and the director of that play was like I wish that the Hollywood producers had not come running for her because she would have been such a great talent on the stage and we lost her to Hollywood because it was like right after her big break on Broadway I think it was called burlesque was the name of the show and I was like oh Cher and Christina Aguilera I know it's different that's <laughs> where my head goes because that was like 1920-something, 1927-ish, I want to say. And somewhere. Whoa. I don't know. But yeah, so she gets her big break in Hollywood, crushes it, becomes <laughs> the highest paid actress in 1944. She was like the pick-herself-up-by-her-bootstraps lady. Her first husband she meets working on a film. Uh, Frank Fay is his name, and he is abusive. And she is in an abusive relationship with him for a long time, from like 1928 to 1935. They adopt a kid. She loves their kid. She eventually divorces him, gets to keep the kid, and then she marries Robert Taylor, who was the love of her life, and they end up getting divorced in 1952, and I guess it was pretty amicable, and I guess it was because he, like, wanted to retire and didn't want to do Hollywood things, and she really still wanted to be in the limelight and do Hollywood stuff. Yeah. And then eventually, this is the bummer. It was a very big bummer to find out that she supported the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Oh! <gasps> yeah. Whoa. So I was like, oh, fuck. Like, that I love you so much. a lot about her, yeah. But this is what I don't understand. She is, like, open-minded. Like, one of the other jobs she did when she was, like, a showgirl was she taught dance classes at, like, a gay club. Yeah, it was, like, a ballroom dancing course for gay people. So I'm like, you're clearly open-minded, and she had an abortion at 15. Like, she's clearly progressive. But yeah, that was a big bummer. She was super anti-fascist and super anti-communist. Well, I can understand how you would feel like that would make you, like, more American. And so I wonder if, like, her stance on being anti-communist doesn't mean that she was, like, a racist. You know what I mean? I don't know. I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, it's probably got more to do with, like, her having, like, people that she knew that, like, died in World War II, that, like, the patriotism that, like, she grew up with, I think would have more to do with being, like, freaked out by communism than, like, actually being, like, I don't believe in equality. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which is, like, how I would see it now. I feel also, like, I what I've heard about her, too, is that she, like, was sexually fluid. Did you hear about this? I have heard this also, and it's funny because it's, like, not on her Wikipedia not on the IMDb. Yeah, what the heck? But yes, this is, has been said about her forever that she was a sexually fluid person. And that she was like open about it, that she was like perfectly willing to speak about how like she was with women. She could be with women. She found women attractive, I guess. Um, which to me makes so much sense because I actually do get like kind of like a sort of a vibe from her. 
maybe it's the voice. Maybe it's like the boxy outfits that make her kind of masculine the way she walks. But I just feel like uh, I see that. I see it. And I love her boxy outfits. They're so cute. Her <laughs> outfits in this in general. I love them. When In the opening yeah. scene, when she's like the opposite of Elizabeth Lane and has like a cheetah print belt and those really cute pants, I'm like, yes. oh, girl, you look so cute. She does look so cute. That's so interesting though that you pointed that out. I hadn't thought about that with like the way she's dressing is like a little more masculine because she has the big shoulder pads that are boxed out. I mean, that was the style of the 40s, but she's right. really covered up a lot in this. Yeah. Um, And she does have a very like authoritative feel about her because of her costumes, like even the fancy ones. I like that as an expression of like, like her sexual fluidity potentially like uh-huh. I like that that's yeah. really cool I think of her as kind of like boxy in general like that was her body was like square up top she in this movie for some reason I kept getting a Natasha Leone vibe from her oh. I don't know if it's the hair I don't know what it is maybe it was the Brooklyn vibe I was getting I don't know but I was like the sassiness the sassiness just like I feel like there's a connection there between Natasha Leone and Barbara Stanwyck, and I can't quite put my finger on what that is. It's like the voice, the confidence, the cool hair, the fur jacket. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I could see Natasha Leone playing this part. Yes, although I feel like Barbara Stanwyck is like a more polished version. Like, Natasha yeah. Leone is unapologetic. She's like, this is who I am, this is what you're getting. And Barbara yeah. Stanwyck is like, unapologetic, but like, dressed up a From little. the 40s. Oh, this is, I love having people that point these things out. Like, I haven't thought about any of these things. So I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. This is great. <laughs> um, I love all the stuff with the job. I love her keeping her job in the end. Wait, where was I going with this? I think I was trying to get to how her uncle supports her. <laughs> And then I was going to talk about how much I like the uncle. I think that's where I was going with this. <laughs> Yo, I love how he they always just like put him in a movie to be somebody's uncle. I feel like he was in a bunch of Doris Day movies. He was in like T for Two. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I guess I know, him for, I know him best from T for Two. But he's always playing that like, sheesh, that character yes. that's like. Well, and then when they don't use that for him, I get bummed about it. Like, we watched um, The Devil and Miss Jones on this show a while ago, and he played just, like, a boring person. And I was like, why aren't you utilizing his talent? He's adorable and hilarious. Like, he's such a welcome presence. Utilize it. Well, hopefully that movie was from before It was movies. from before. That was from Good. 41. So they, like, learned, you know. Hopefully they learned. But, yeah, he's such a delight. I found out he's from Hungary. Really? So this guy, his name is S.Z. Sakal. Yes, he's from Hungary for real. And then Jack Warner gave him the nickname Cuddles, and that was how he was, he was called Cuddles Sakal, like, all the time. I bet they just called him Cuddles. They totally did. And he just looks like a sheer delight. He was um, an actor in Hungary on the stage, like a pretty big actor there. I think they moved to Germany and he did like films in Germany too, I think, but he was Jewish. So in 1933, when the Nazis got very serious, he ended up having to flee and his relatives that stayed behind. So it was him and his wife that left um, and they came to America and he like did work here. But, uh, like, a lot of his family was wiped out in concentration camps. They were, like, murdered by Nazis in concentration camps. And he would have died also if he had stayed. Um, So I'm very grateful that he got out. Um, I wish his family could have gotten out, That's an amazing story. No wonder people loved having him in their movies. Apparently he was a delight. Like, apparently also Barbara Stanwyck was a delight to work with. Apparently everyone in this film was just, like, a lovely human to work with. And I appreciate that, watching it, knowing that they all got along, you know? For sure. I think you can feel that. Yes, you can totally feel it. And he's 
speaking English, which is not his first language, but his comedic timing is impeccable. And I love how much they utilize his difficulty speaking English as just a character trait. It's interesting that you say that because I always thought that I thought he was putting on the accent. I thought that he was like doing it as a character choice. So it's interesting to know that like he actually didn't know how to speak English very well. Well, and he might have. I mean, maybe he did put it on more for roles. I don't think I've ever heard him speak as himself before. Right. He's so good. Like, he's so talented. You can tell he's a talented actor. He's a talented comedic actor. Um, Yep. And he's crushing it. When he says hunky-dunky, I still laugh and think it's funny and cute. (laughs) You know? What does he say? Catastrophe? Catastrophe. Yeah. Catastrophe. And that brings us to, did you notice the moment? So we had talked last week about how there were certain directors in the 40s that tried very subtly to include positive influences of Black performers in this. Did you notice it? Girl, of course I did, especially because of last week you pointing out that like some movies had done it. I definitely had my eye open for both of those moments. Mm -hmm. The one where um, the woman is dropping off a package for her and the other one where the Black boy explains what the word catastrophe means in Greek. And is like so eloquent about it. I know. You know who I bet put that in there? The women. The woman. The girl that wrote the screenplay. Mm-hmm. We got to look her up and see who she, who this is. She was Italian. I think her parents were immigrants. And I feel like just in general, people who had immigrant ties were just like more inclusive about shit because they understood. They got it. Mm, okay. Yeah, I, I love those two moments so much. And like... The moment she has with the woman, the woman looks stunning, gorgeous. They, like, make eye contact with each other. Yeah. I love that moment. And then, yeah, again, the moment with Sam, something I noticed this time that I hadn't noticed before because I've loved that moment for years of, like, oh, my God, yes, like, a black man being eloquent on screen who does not – he's not being forced to, like, put on this stereotype or this bullshit accent. Like, he's just wonderful. But I noticed this time that he is wearing – um, the same uniform as all of the other white waiters. Like everyone is in the same beautiful uniform bow tie. Everyone has the same responsibilities. And I was like, oh, another layer of like trying to show equality in some form. It's interesting to me how in a situation like this, the only time that white people ever would be interacting with anybody black would be in a position of them serving the white people. Yeah. Because, you know, you're trying to give a black person a part. The only parts you can give them is to show them in subservient roles. Yeah, it sucks. (laughs) And it's like they're trying so hard to make the most of those roles, but it's still like, you're right. We wish there could be, that there could be more people of color involved in the lives we're following and not just in, you're right, subservient positions. Right, or even just like if it was a side part of like a woman on the bus. But it's it's interesting that like at that time, the only time that a white person would probably be interacting wouldn't be on a bus because the black person wouldn't be in the same, black person would have been at the back of the bus. So, or on a different bus entirely, like right. if they had segregated bus systems. Right, going to a different part of town. But I think that's interesting to note that even when somebody is making it obviously an intense effort to put people of color in there, it just shows how black people were viewed and how they weren't even able to really interact in a way that gave them a, the potential to be seen as equal human beings. They, I mean, they're, they're seen as subservient even when they're get, given a chance. Oh, it's so, like, it's so depressing and disheartening 
Like just knowing what could have been, like knowing the talent that was out there, knowing the brains that were out there and knowing that like we don't get to have these moments or see these things like on film in these eras. Do you know what I mean? Like we yeah. get pretty much only the white person's perspective throughout most of the 20th century, 21st yeah. century. Which century are we in? You know what I mean? I do. Yes. I do know what you mean. I do know what You're you like, mean. You're like, yes, I do, dummy. Like, no, it's, <laughs> it's really... No, I'm thinking about it because it's really clear how how much more separate everything was and how mm -hmm. this this world, if you were a white person, was a white person world. And every once in a while, some alien, some like thing that looked like a different culture or a different thing came into your world. But the whole world was white people. And um, that's interesting to think about because that girl who gave the package, you know, mm -hmm had a whole family and a whole, like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, she had a whole story. And we don't ever get to know it. And she, let's be clear, like, she looks like a movie star. She She's is gorgeous. beautiful, you know? So, like, she could have, I'm sure, had a whole movie based around her in general, and we will never get that movie because she was never given, like, a fighting chance on screen because she was not white. Right, because the story that we're telling is so much about white people living a white world life. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, somebody's subservient pops in. But yeah, it, it really shows you in a lot of ways, like hopefully that we've come far. I mean, there's a lot of ways to say that we haven't, but at, you know, at least we've tried to become a lot more integrated than, than that. Although I am glad that I at least got to share that experience with you of like every now and then they've really tried to put positive influences in there. But now that you're like, it's still subservient. I'm like, oh yeah, fuck. Like it's, it still feels <laughs> like such a loss. Like, oh no. Well, no, I think oh. it's interesting that they, that this particular team of people tried because I don't think that was very um, typical. I think that's kind of a rare thing that everyone's in a, that like to see black people interacting with white people, I think is a very bold statement at the time. Well, and in a positive, quote unquote, positive way of like no stereotypes placed on the black people in general, like of how they speak yeah. or how they behave. Definitely somebody is trying to make a statement, which is really cool. But yeah, I'm really glad you pointed out that other thing too, though, because I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, because it, you know, as a black woman growing up with these types of movies, there wasn't really, it was clear that like, I didn't belong in any of these worlds. But like when somebody black pops into the movie, to me, that just reminds me like, oh, that's right. Like, that's how I would be seen in this fantasy of mine of dreaming of being in Christmas in Connecticut is I would be the servant. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't get to. You would be Lena Horne is like the reality. Uh, like, that's who you would actually be. But. Yeah. <laughs> but Lena Horne and Story Weathers. I don't know. She's she's not as rich as Barbara Stanley. <laughs> but um but yeah, I mean it, it is it does kind of it stands out to me as soon as the girl walks the door and is like not sort of looked at as a whole human being. Yeah. It's funny cuz um this this house is the Holiday Inn set. Like the exterior of the Christmas in Connecticut house is the Holiday Inn house. And that movie has some very fucked up like black connotations. I mean, they literally have a blackface number. Right. And then there's like a, like a mammy kind of, I hate using that word, but like they have that kind of yeah. housekeeper type character with her two children yep. and they're portrayed in a pretty negative light. And I'm sure those people were not like that at all in real life. I wonder how that actress felt like having to do that. Um, 
I'm at least glad, hopefully, she got paid really well, at least, at the very least. <laughs> but it's just so funny that those these movies kind of tie together just because of this house. Like, they're both mm. holiday-themed, they're both filmed in this place, and yet one has such a different viewpoint than the other about how people of color are portrayed. Interesting. Yeah, well, this one was written by a woman, so. So there you say? go. <laughs> there you go. Bring it back to that every time. Thank you. No, I'm glad that you do. And I'm sorry we, ta- we stayed on that topic for so long, too. I just, like... That was one of the things I liked about this movie. Because I know it's not like a big part of the film, but it was something that I felt like this movie's progressive in a lot of ways, and that's one of the ways. No, I think that that is probably directly, directly related. There's no way. I mean, the woman is the main character, and you're right. She's a career woman, and it's about her keeping her... That's the crux of the whole Mm -hmm. thing is, can she keep her career and, you know, have a romantic life? I mean, there's nothing more classic than that discussion um but i don't think a man would necessarily understand that dilemma the way that a woman would so i think it's really awesome that a woman got a chance to write this in 1945 yes and i mean there are still moments when you wonder like towards the end when she's holding the baby that's not hers because they the way they have like the baby that's not their baby is there's these really badass ladies that work at the war plant that drop off their babies every day. And I'm like, oh, I want to follow them too. Like what's their life at the war plant like? Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're pretty cool and they drop off their babies. And so it's funny because every time it's a different baby. So Sydney Greenstreet will be like, what, what happened to the baby? Why are they so different? And she'd be like, it's not, you're wrong. What she actually says is, wouldn't you look different if you swallowed a watch? Because they're pretending that the baby swallowed Felix's watch so she doesn't have to get married at that moment. I like how she starts calling the baby it. Same. She starts calling the baby it so that she doesn't have to refer to it as a boy or a girl. Yes. And this time I noticed a mistake. Nora gets the genders, like, not that there's any right or wrong gender, but Nora, um, at the end when it's the boy, Nora's like, her mom is coming to pick her up. And I was like, even Nora doesn't know, like, the genders of these babies. So, um, but yeah, she starts calling it it. And I was like, if you had just done that from the beginning, you would have been set. And, well, I love that he just, like, lets it go that she calls the baby Robert and then is like, I'm just, it's Roberta, it's Roberta. Like, I like that he's like, whatever, that's normal. Let's just roll past all of this. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but yeah, she, when she's holding the baby, Felix makes a comment that's like, ooh, a baby looks good on you. And I was like, yes, but she can also still have a job and a baby and a life. Don't forget that. Like, we don't <laughs> specify it, but I really believe it should be stated. Um, no, that's the whole point of the movie. Don't worry, girl. She's got that job. That's the happy ending. At the end, her ending gets to be happy because of Felix's cooking. Because she gets fired for lying to her editor. Um, when Sydney Greenstreet fires her... All it takes to turn him around is Felix being like, I'll give you some food if you hire my friend back. Right. And he's kind of like, okay, (laughs) all right, sure. That sounds normal to me. Well, none of it is really all that normal. Like, he he just, like, decides that he's going to spend Christmas at her house just because she cooks. Well, that's (laughs) not, like, a thing. He's so rude throughout the film. And I think if it was not Sydney Greenstreet, we would so hate that character. Mm. So Sydney Greenstreet, for people at home, you probably know him from the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca. And I looked it up today. I think he was like 59. Was it 59 or 62? He was 62, I think, when he made his first movie. Isn't that crazy? Yes. I love that. 
I love stories like that. 62, and he was 300 pounds, and he often gets called the fat man. So in this, Felix says it to him, and he's referencing, his first movie was The Maltese Falcon, and he plays Casper Gutman, a.k.a. the fat man. And I feel like from that point on, they mention his weight in almost everything he does. And he was a man. Talk about pigeonholed. You know, you get known as this one thing, and then all of a sudden they're like, we need to cast someone who's believably going to, like, make choices based on food. (laughs) Well, let's get the fat man. You know what I mean? Yes. Even in his radio show, which I totally listen to, he's on this radio program called The Adventures of Nero Wolf. And the whole gimmick of this detective is that he never gets out of his armchair because he's so fat. So he has, like, a guy that goes on the ground and comes back and tells him things, and he solves the things in his armchair. And I was like, oh, God, even on radio. Even when they can't see him, they still make him a fat man. Oh, my God. You know? It's it's part of his, like, brand. And this is, like, such a solid character cast. I think the character actors in this are absolutely wonderful. Like, every single person. Um, We haven't mentioned John Sloan yet. That's Reginald Gardner. He is so funny in this. But one of my favorite moments with him, actually, is a moment when he breaks character. There's a moment when they're at the dance And you can tell they're all just kind of having fun. And he does something silly as like a real human. And you can tell for one second he's like not playing a part and they're joking around. Like that's him. I love that moment so much. He like does something goofy. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he's a solid character actor. Um, We have Cuddle Sakal, Sydney Greenstreet. The woman, I didn't write down her name, the woman that plays Mary Lee, Una O'Connor, like such a solid like murderer's row of character actors that hold up the whole thing and have like very decent roles. It is kind of a character movie. It feels almost like it's like a play or something. If you could figure out what to do with the cow, I think that it would make a great play. That cow moment is cute though. It's so cute. All of their moments are cute. I also was realizing like, how hard she's going for him. Like, if we did not love Barbara Stanwyck as a character, we'd be like, whoa, back off a little lady. Because she you think? hits on him really hard. Like, you can tell they immediately fall in love. And again, I want to point out, you know they're perfect for each other because they're both giving, but they're both, like, not <laughs> traditional people. They're both eccentric. Like, he's an artist and a painter. And he's like, I'm a rolling stone. I don't like to settle. And she's a writer who's, like, very independent. So I feel like they would be a really good match for each other in general. But yeah, they you can tell they fall in love instantly. They're very cute together. But yeah, their first real moment alone is when they go with the cow and she is all in. She tries to kiss him. She's like, "Would you ever want to be with a married woman?" And I'm like, "This is your first conversation. You heard him sing and now we're here." Mhm. No mm-hmm. judgment. Like, I get it, but she I was just realizing how hard she was going cuz then at the end when he comes after her, he's going pretty hard too and it comes off a little little lecherousy but then you're like wait but it's the opposite because she was going hard at the beginning so now he's going hard at the end i don't know well now keep in mind that they're both single yes they are and so she's going hard in the beginning because she's like i'm not really doing anything wrong by going for this guy that i like really just want to like jump him like we're sitting out here under the moonlight together and like i'm actually not married so like there's nothing wrong here and I think that's why she tries and she's like, oh, you're just not the type, but I really would have liked to like have my cake and eat it too. Um, and then I think that he goes after her hard because now that he knows she's not married, that's what he wanted to do the whole time. <laughs> but I think also he's like trying to like get her 
Don't you think he's trying to get her to admit that she's not married? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Right? Yes, totally. I don't know how going after her sexually is going to make her do that. I didn't love the choice, but I got the choice. Like, I understood where they were going from a writer's perspective and how to, like, tie that in with her earlier. Like, I get where they were going from that front. But watching, especially as a modern viewer, you're like, do you please not just, like, force her to kiss you? That's not actually romantic. (laughs) Like, there's this thing called consent. There's a lot of force going on in this movie, and that's one of the things I wondered what you were going to say looking at it from a 2020 lens. Please bring it up. Yes. Well, so much of this movie, there's so much about a man trying to force her to sleep with him, basically. I mean... I think he wants to marry her, but like what he really wants to do is like get into bed. And when they're in this house together, he's all about like, where are we going to sleep? Where are we going to go to bed together? And it's almost like she keeps trying to like slip out of situations that she doesn't want to be in. And, you know, she feels like she sort of has to sleep with him and has to give herself over to him because she wants to keep her career. So there are, there are overtones there of like what would have been seen as like, an understandable, acceptable situation. It's kind of funny in 1945, whereas like by now it's a little bit like, oh, I'm uncomfortable for her. She shouldn't be in this position where she feels like she can't, she doesn't have the ability to say no. And that was a huge part of the movie. And she's told him no many times before as well. Well, and even her editor, when she tells him she's going to marry John, he goes, Elizabeth, it's not that bad. You don't have to resort to this. This is her low point. This is the bottom. Marrying John is the only way to stay safe and to keep going. This would have been, if it wasn't a comedy, it would have been a different movie. Like, that's a little melancholic. And it's funny, John has that line about being an architect. What is it? It's like... Oh, the details. Oh, I'm the architect. I never allow anyone to interfere with my plans, is what he says. Oh. And I was like, wow, that's your character statement because that's true about him. And you're right, he doesn't view her as a full person. He views her as an object. Like, I have built this beautiful home. I have done all of these things exactly the way I wanted. You are a beautiful woman. I want you. I want to possess you. And so, yeah, it's not about her at all. You're right. It's about, yes, wanting to have sex with her and also just, like, wanting to own her. She would be a possession in his perfect house. He's not really worried about whether or not, like, how she feels. She tells him how she feels. She's like, I don't love you. You know that, right? Right. Also, I kept trying to figure out how they would have met. That was what I was thinking, too. Like, you're so polar opposite. He's, like, this stodgy douchebag from Connecticut. How the hell did you guys meet? And also, what does he really find attractive in you? Is it just that you're so free and he wants to, like, trap that? Like, you're a free bird he wants to put in a cage? She's gorgeous. I think it's just a sexual thing. I really do. Which is why it creeped me out. Just the subtle things of him putting his arm around her low waist. I'm like, get your hands off her, you creeper. She clearly doesn't want this. She told you no many times. She said she's only saying yes because she feels trapped. Like, ugh. Can I tell you the flip side of that is something that concerned me. This viewing was, so her, we get the idea that her... And Dennis Morgan's character are going to get married at the end of the movie, but he has to ship out right away. And so my sweet concern for them was like, oh, I hope you guys get to like have sex before he goes. Because like, what if he dies at war and you never get to have sex together? So that was my flip side of that, of like, (laughs) oh, I hope you guys get to sleep together before he ships out. Oh, yeah, no, I get that. Get it in, girl, before you get married in 1945. Get that sex. (laughs) But we'll never know. We'll just have to assume that they didn't have sex because it wasn't nighttime. (laughs) It wasn't night. 
I just, oh, I also just want to talk about the cozy Christmasness of it all. Just the fantasy of this Christmas. Like, the house that they're in is so beautiful. The views with the snow and the sleigh. They go on, like, a beautiful horse-drawn sleigh while they're falling in love. They go to a dance where there's, like, square dancing and, like, 1940s dancing and everyone's drinking punch. Yeah. It just looks so festive and homey and lovely. And they have that beautiful giant Christmas tree and the fireplace and all the adorable little cocktails. And you know they're eating really well because you know Felix the chef is cooking for them. Right. And they're they're like not a traditional family. It's like a very pieced together eclectic kind of group. I don't know. I just love it. Like I would love to have a holiday just like that. And in my adult life, I don't think I really have. Because no one really has, I guess, is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that Hollywood fantasy magic. Or maybe it's a time period. Well, have you ever been on like a horse-drawn sleigh on Christmas? I have done like carriage rides through Central Park, but it's a little bit like on the nose when you yeah. do it. Like, <laughs> on, you, I feel like it make me feel a little self-conscious. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done it in Central Park. I definitely went on a carriage ride with um, when my family was on vacation in Montreal when I was a kid. And we shared with another family so it would be less expensive, but we didn't know them, so we had to, like, face them. And I just remember feeling so uncomfortable. I think I was, like, 11 or 12. And I was like, this is supposed to be fun, but I don't know these people. I am so awkward. I, it was that kind That was my memory of something like that. But, yeah, yeah. I would love to – I don't think I've ever been in a horse-drawn sleigh in snow before. Like, that's never happened. I know, but you know what? It's gotten complicated with horses recently because you're wondering what's going on with this horse. How is he being treated? Is he enjoying this? Is this what he wants to be doing with his life? You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel do. like it's just one of those things that, like, the more aware we become <laughs> as a society, the more tricky those things are. It's like I can't just enjoy a sleigh ride without thinking about the humanity of the friggin' horse these days. Oh, God, you're right. Is I feel actually upset with myself that I didn't think of that now, and now I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. you're right. <laughs> you're right. I'm like, are you okay, horse? Blink twice if you're being mistreated. Like, Man, oh. some of those horses look so sad. Oof. No, we can't. We we know too much. It would be it would be a tricky sleigh ride, I think, for you. Yeah, I guess you're probably right. I'm trying to think. I feel like I'm not doing this movie justice. It, it's like I you love really it love so this much. Movie. Yeah. yeah, you know, like I again for reasons I don't even know if I can describe. It just feels so cozy and homey. And I think there's something about Barbara Stanwyck that like I don't know if it's that she reminds me of my grandma or what it is, but I feel like a connection to her. Um, mm. I just really love her, especially in this movie. Barbara Stanwyck is just like, can do any genre. And so you were saying earlier, like, it's such a surprise to see her in something where she's not a villain. And um, my favorite roles of hers are actually all of her comedy roles. Like, my favorite things that she's been in are like this, Ball of Fire, The Lady Eve. Like, those are my favorite Barbara Stanwyck's. Mm. And those are like mm. her comedies. And But she was so prolific and so proficient in like Double Indemnity, Stella Dallas. She was nominated for an Academy Award four times and never won, though she did win in 1982 for an honorary like Lifetime Career Award. And she did Westerns too, like she really could do everything. But my favorites of hers are the comedies for sure. Like I much prefer to see her in that kind of role versus like the villain. And I maybe it's just because she has more agency in the comedies. Like her character is always the boss, her character is always so smart and so strong. Even like in Ball of Fire when she's supposed to be not as bright as the scientist, she's street smart. They have like the science brains and she's got the street smarts. 
and she comes off as like the winner, you know? I think in her comedies, she's always the winner. Ooh. She's always the winner no matter what. She's kind of like Betty Davis where like, even if she's like manipulative or like a, a bad girl, like you kind of are rooting for her at the same time. You're always rooting for her. She has like an of the people presence. No matter how glamorous she is, she is of the people. She is one of us. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, she dated Robert Wagner for four years when he was 22 and she was 45. I forgot yes. about that. You oh go girl. And he must have felt like he was, like, doing every fantasy he ever wanted, like, being 22, dating Barbara Stanwyck. And they, it was for four years. That's, like, a relationship. Like, they were together. Yeah, I get it. But it was great for both of them. That's what I'm saying. Oh, just in case we want to know, the director is Peter Godfrey. He was, like, an actor in some things and a director of mostly B-movies, but he also directed The Woman in White, and then he directed Barbara Stanwyck again in Cry Wolf. The writer, so the woman that we had talked about, her name is Adele Comandini. And she also wrote Three Smart Girls, which is like, that was the Deanna Durbin like musical hit. I love that movie. She wrote it. She wrote it. Oh my God, Deanna Durbin. And it doesn't look like these two, so these two wrote this movie together. It was her and Lionel Hauser, but it looked like they didn't work together a lot. So I'm like wondering what the story is here. And he wrote Sabotage, Three Hearts for Julia, The Courage of Lassie. And then Aileen Hamilton wrote the story and she wrote like a movie. I don't know if she wrote the screenplay or the story for Slightly Dangerous and The Borrowed Baby. Okay. So those are those are those people. Um, Just in case anyone at home was wondering. Oh, Edith Head did the gowns. Classic. Oh, and we did talk about like what an unusual beginning. What a great framing device. Because it's so weird that we like don't meet the main character right away. That we're invested in this story in a totally different way. And none of those characters really come back. We forget about Mary for most of the film. And then at the very end, she comes back. And I don't remember him ever proposing to her. So I'm wondering if they were actually engaged or if it was just like in her mind that they were engaged. He seems to agree with her though. Yeah, but remember when she writes Alexander Yardley, she's like, he just won't propose because he's never had a home before. So I'm like, wait, are you engaged or aren't you? Because if they were engaged, he never would have been made to come home, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Plot loophole. Yeah, that's a loophole. You're right. You walked me through that one brilliantly. Thanks. It's totally true. The whole premise was that she wanted him to want to marry her. So they can't be engaged. The reason we don't remember is because she's gone the whole movie. So we forget about her. And so when she comes back, we're like, oh, shit, I guess they're engaged. Oh, so we're like, maybe we missed that. If she got married, then what's she doing at that house? She wanted to tell him that she had married the other guy. Also... The time loop here is insane. So she loves this guy so much that she's going to write to a magazine publisher she's never met and ask him this huge favor. And then in three days, she marries that guy's best friend. That one checks out more for me because it seems less that she is in love with this guy and more that she's just like wanting to get married. So she's part of the old system. We were talking about how like there's this these men that kind of want to trap Barbara Stanwyck. Are they just a metaphor for the system? And Mary Lee is a part of that. All she can think about is getting married. She doesn't really care to who. She's kind of like John in that way. He just wants to like get married and have sex. He doesn't care to who. Oh. But to Barbara Stanwyck and Dennis Morgan, these things matter. And then Sinkowitz, the guy that Mary ends up marrying, he's the one that knows her name. So when Dennis Morgan's like, what's my nurse's name? That guy knows her name. So I invented this secret love story where like that guy actually has been in love with the nurse. That's your childhood speaking right there. That you invented that up when you first watched this movie as a child. And I think it's a beautiful 
way of looking at it. And I think that it, it, there's no reason why that couldn't be the case. Well, I mean, because he likes to eat and she likes to cook. So maybe it is a match made in heaven. <laughs> you know? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. But I want her to just want to cook and not be forced to cook. I will say that. Like, there's nothing wrong. She doesn't need to cook. married. There's nothing wrong with, like, being a wife. That's all good and fine. I just feel like anyone who wants to force everyone to do that, that's the problem. Like, do what you want to do. Don't force anyone else to do that as well. Gosh, you really sound like a feminist right now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're, like, literally explaining feminism. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of this concept before, but <laughs> I did also write down that I – what I was laughing about this time is that in the beginning of the movie when Dennis Morgan is on that raft and he's dreaming about food – he still pictures himself on the raft eating the food, like not in a fancy restaurant. Yeah, he's in a raft. <laughs> he's still in a raft with his like drawn yeah. on beard. Yeah, I feel like the writers like died laughing when they thought about the fact that like in his best fantasy, he's still on the raft. And then just like, I always love the diet shit from the past. So like the thing that's good for your stomach is milk and a raw egg. Like that's what you should be eating to settle yourself. Ew. Oh God, it was gross. Ew. And the line where he's like, I have so much milk. If I open my mouth, I'll moo. And then they have the cow later. And I was like, ooh, writers, full circle. <laughs> so, yeah. And we've talked about a lot of stuff. We hear about the legend of Elizabeth Lane before we meet her. They build her up. And then they really, like, pop that idea. So I like that. I said, it's gross when he licks his lips. I stand by that. This is also a line that I don't love where they're talking about kind of what makes Elizabeth Lane. And it's Dennis Morgan's line, and he says, I know she's a wonderful woman, a marvelous housekeeper, and a great cook, but would you mind reading something else? And I'm like, oh, is that what we value in women? Like, she's a wonderful woman, a marvelous housekeeper, and a great cook. It's a bummer. <laughs> it is what they valued in 1945, though. It's like literally what they valued in a woman. Yeah. Does she make good babies, and does she keep the house clean? Oof. And give good dinners? Well, but then by the end, it doesn't matter because they do establish she can do none of those things and it's all going to be fine. And she's still a wonderful woman. And I think that was just for the buildup. Like, really, they had to build up her character and like, this is describing Elizabeth Lane. Is she really like that? No. This movie is really ahead of its time in a lot of ways by just pointing this fact out and then contradicting it. And then having having us root for the contradiction. Yeah, it's kind of awesome that like this movie was written and it feels like it's ahead of its yeah. time. Well, and again, I think one of my favorite parts as an adult is when um, he does like give the baby a bath and knows what he's doing and is totally like cool with this and loving it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that would be a great partner. It's not some like man that's gonna come sit on the couch and expect you to be his servant. He would be like a partner. like an actual like doing this with you kind of person he's the one that knows how to do the diaper not her yep he's so adorable and then, well, they had a, we get cute little baby in this movie i love a movie with a baby of course a baby or a puppy we get a baby i know how rare is that and like a naked baby they give us like naked baby butt those little cheekies little tummy mm. little baby and then the baby's eating the soap and then they're like she goes oh no and he's like don't worry they all do and i'm like that explains so much about your generation <laughs> yeah it's a great movie. I'm really glad that you introduced me to it because I'd never seen it before. I'd never even heard Wait, of it. Really? I never heard of it. My mother had never heard of it. I brought it up to her. She was like, I don't know that one. And anyway, so I feel like um, this is a movie that more people should know. It's very Christmassy, classic, and feel good and ahead of its yeah. time. 
in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's funny because I actually have, sh if you are my friend and we have lived in the same city and it's around Christmas time, I have probably forced you to watch this. And I feel like it's hit or miss because it's so, you know, it's old fashioned. It's from the 40s. So I think, especially in the beginning when you see the submarine and you're like, oh, fuck, what is this? I think I've had a lot of friends not enjoy this movie so much. What? So I'm really glad that you enjoyed it and liked the things that I like about it. Yeah, that's why we're friends. <laughs> um, I also wrote down another I kept writing down quotes because I was like yes that's a great quote there is one where she gets her mink coat which she paid for herself by the way because that's such a theme in classic films like who bought you the mink coat what mm. man bought that for you and she's like I bought mm -hmm. this for me but mm -hmm. her quote is all my life I promised myself a mink coat you know Felix it's very important to keep your promises especially to yourself and I was like yes and her promises to herself are about, like, waiting for the right person, mm -hmm. I think. Don't yes. you think? This is, it doesn't quite, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't quite fadge, because Twelfth Night is in my brain, apparently. How will this fadge? Um, <laughs> how she, like, would say yes to John at all. Like, that doesn't make sense, because she's so strong in all these other aspects, and she's so clearly uncomfortable. And I don't know, I, I just can't quite reconcile her saying yes to him. And like her going along with that because she clearly is so strong for herself. You know what? I thought about this. And this was a moment where I was thinking about how Betty Davis would play it. And I wonder if when this was originally written, if it would have been a little bit more calculated when Betty Davis did it, that she was saying yes, sort of in order to like manipulate. And I wonder if that makes more sense in terms of like this particular character and why she would do something so outside of what she's been like in the past. I can see it being like a manipulation. I can see it being like, oh, well, I'll do anything for my career. And I feel like Barbara Stanwyck wasn't playing it as um, cutthroat as like maybe Betty Davis would have. And I think that was a moment where the writing would have made more sense had they had Betty Davis as an actor. Because she never quite has to marry him. She's always finding a way out. And so maybe for Betty Davis, that would have been a much more calculated thing to see. Whereas for Barbara Stanwyck, it's like relief and grief. Or like she's, it's like her giving up almost is the feeling you get from it when she says yes to him. So yeah, it's such a different way of playing it. You're right. I do wonder how Betty Davis would have done it. Yeah, because Barbara Stanwyck, she plays it so innocently. And I feel like in some ways that's to the detriment of the movie because that makes us feel so much more stressed out about the fact that this man is like, like got her trapped in his home. But at the same time, I think since it's, we know it's a comedy, it's like you're stressed out, but you also know it's going to work out. So it's not as terrible. If we yeah. went in and we're like, this is a drama, we'd be like, oh, fuck, how is this going to go? But just knowing that it's a comedy, you are a little stressed out. But at the same time, you're like, it's going to go well. She's not going to end up with this guy. And he's like, to me, so not threatening. And I wonder if it's because he seems so bumbling. But also, I wonder if it's because he played in um, The Man Who Came to Dinner. He was like that Noel Coward part. And so I wonder if, like, we've seen him in other silly roles that when you see him as this person, Maybe. you're like, but you're silly. Like, this is just silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? To me, the fact that he's so intense on marrying her in, like, 15 minutes before they go to bed is, like, a little weird. Yes. Well, because also he wants it to be appropriate, too. So it's like, everything has to be by the book. Right. And then he has a temper tantrum when it doesn't work out. He's like, I won't sleep, which I feel like is so, like, realistic. 
that a guy would be like throwing a temper tantrum because he because you said no and the part where he's like i'm gonna go tell yardley now you're not doing what i want i'm gonna ruin everything for you oh wait the situation turned around and it's all of a sudden benefiting me and they want me to be a writer just kidding everything's fine uh like that was very (laughs) shitty of him i will say i loved his bar in his house when they had that bar set up, I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty nice. I might be taking notes. He got a nice house. house is beautiful. He got a nice house. I think that her and Jefferson Jones should buy the house with her new earnings of her double salary that she's getting. There you go. And also the Alexander Yardley stuff, the way they make him and how he only thinks about the bottom line consistently and how he never lets anybody talk. And then at the very end, she won't let him talk. And I love that. And she uses another comedic triple when she's like, I'm tired of working for your gall darn paper. Tired of everyone telling me what to do. And then the part she's like, well, in short, I'm tired. And I'm like, oh, Barbara, I love it. <laughs> the delivery is great. I loved that line. And then the hand acting too. I was thinking about Betty Davis. Remember we talked about how Betty Davis loves to like touch things? Barbara Stanwyck doesn't touch everything. And you know it's in the script. She keeps picking up this like... What is it? It's like a statue or something, like a ceramic statue and like touching it and holding it. And I just kept getting so many Betty Davis vibes because I was like, oh, Betty would have been all over that, like holding that statue, like feeling it. And then she breaks it. And you're so relieved when she breaks it. I love it when she breaks the statue. Oh, it's great writing. It's like she's finally, she's finally. She's tired. (laughs) She's tired. She's ending it all. She's tired. And I feel like women probably could relate to that monologue too. Like, oh, I'm just tired. I've related to it. Yeah. And then when he leaves and then Felix comes in and he's like, did something go bust? Because he means the ceramic thing. And then John says, yeah, because they broke up and that also means busted. And it's so good. It's so smart. He says, plenty. It's so good. I love this movie so much. It is good writing. All right. We'll head into the double feature portion of the show. So I said it would pair really well with Remember the Night, which I really enjoy. The ending is a little funky. Like it's weird for the tone of the film that movie but in general i think remember the night would be pair really well with this it's barbara stanwick and fred mcmurray and it's a christmas movie that is so underrated and it's on peacock for free right now oh wow barbara stanwick is a shoplifter who is like on trial for shoplifting and fred mcmurray is the prosecutor but they're from like a similar hometown in indiana and he doesn't want her to be stuck in jail for christmas so he agrees to like drive her to the hometown they may or may not fall in love. So that, <laughs> I, I recommend that. Um, I feel like The Man Who Came to Dinner would pair well with this, but I don't love that movie. But I feel like it would pair pretty well. Totally. Meet John Doe would pair really well. And then this is what I hate. I feel like Holiday Inn would be a good pair with this movie, but it's a very, it's really, really hard to watch Holiday Inn. Like, I have a hard time watching it. I imagine a lot of people would. There, It's very disrespectful and disgusting. Like, the blackface stuff is gross. And, like, just the treatment of black characters. I don't know. If you can stomach that stuff, I mean, but, yeah, that would be essentially my perfect pair double features. Do you have any that you would add? Those are good. This movie reminds me of It's a Wonderful Life. I would pair it with another happy 1940s Christmas movie. Maybe that's a little bit of a... Like Miracle on 34th Street. But that's not as feminist. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But maybe because this is a story about a woman. It's a Wonderful Life, I would think. It's a story about a guy and... 
kind of um, Violet, the blonde girl in It's a Wonderful Life, kind of reminds me of the nurse in this movie. So, Oh, I had not put that together. Do you know that I don't like It's a Wonderful Life? Have we talked about this? That movie really stresses me out. Why? I have a very Phoebe from Friends reaction to it. You know how Phoebe's like, it's a sucky, sucky life. When Potter steals the money, I get so stressed out. And just like all the bad things happening really stress me out. So even though by the end it's happy, I've sat there just like being so stressed out for his life. I see what you're saying. Like there's such a build up of like sadness that comes beforehand. It gets worse. It gets worse. It gets worse. Oh my God, everything's terrible. It's happy now. Forget it was ever bad. And so I'm sitting there like, oh my God, this is hard to watch. Oh my God. It's so beautiful, Sarah. I mean, people have your back and you are loved and your life is important. Like, yes, I have watched it. Like, I can appreciate it as a film. I can appreciate that it's a good film. I love the whole, like, Frank Capra after the war story about it. Like, I like all of that. It's a solid film. But usually, if I have a choice, I'm not going to pick that one. It's not part of my Christmas routine. I'm not going to select it. Can I at least offer that the one thing that he wants in life is to make his life meaningful by going out there and being somebody and, like, making change. And, like, it's horrible because his brother is, like, going out there and being, like, a war hero and, like, getting to go out there. And, like, he's trapped here, but all he wants is, like, to make something meaningful of his life. But what is so beautiful about it is that he doesn't realize that just by being a good person he has done so much more meaning for so many people and so it's less to do with like the fact that like he went off and did shit and more about like oh my god look at all the people that he affected just by not even leaving his town just by being a good person it is hard to watch him not get his dreams like a lot but that's why I think it's so meaningful because it's so real. It's so realistic that like shit does not go your way. How do you handle it in life? I handle it by watching Christmas in Connecticut. I get it. Maybe it's, maybe it's too real. Maybe it's too real. It was so lovely having you back. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for having me again. It was such a pleasure again. Yeah. Always. <laughs> well, see everybody next time. Talk classic to me. Uh -huh.